Welcome to Behind the Smile with Ash Butters, a podcast designed to reveal the truth behind the masks we wear. Together, we look to demystify the human mind and its behaviours in relation to mental health, trauma and addiction. My name's Ash and I'll be your host as we uncover the real stories of people's pain and the steps they've taken to live a life of freedom in recovery. From sobriety to spirituality, join me each week as we uncover the reasons why people seek recovery and how their lives have changed by living one day at a time. Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of Behind the Smile. Today I'm joined in the studio by coach, mentor and mum of two, Karina McKenna. Karina made the decision to get sober on the 25th of January 2010 at the ripe young age of 23. She's spent the last 13 years navigating many of life's major milestones sober, including getting married and becoming a mum. Having met in the rooms of recovery, I've always been drawn to Karina's story and I'm really excited for you to hear her open and honest share today. So with that, I'd love to welcome Karina into the studio and onto the show. Karina, welcome to Behind the Smile. How are you? I'm great, Ash. Thank you for having me. Uh, I love how you said open and honest, just cueing that like we are going to be open and honest today. Let's do it. We are going deep today. Well, every (laughs) time I've heard you share, like you just go straight from the heart, exactly what's going on at the time. You never sugarcoat things. It's always so raw, so honest. So hopefully we can bring that energy into the interview today. Yeah. Yeah. It's, It's very easy to do when you have a background where you had to catch up with your own stories. Mm. And so I feel like recovery's taught me that really all I have is my my story. All I have is how I'm feeling, what what I'm experiencing right now. And it just is such a simple way to live life, right? Mm. Just in your own authenticity, not hiding behind anything, um, behind the smile as, you know, podcast is all about, right? Yeah. And because for so many years, that's what we do. I think it's one of the biggest things that I've noticed stepping into recovery. When people ask me how I am now, I tell them the truth. Yeah. (laughs) sometimes it's not pretty and it's not that you go into the negative story but you just rather than saying yeah I'm fine or yeah I'm okay it's like well actually this is going on for me at the moment or actually I've had my mind consumed by x and it just instantly de-armors you and lets that other person step into your circle into your light Mm -hmm. and then I feel like there's this instant connection that we don't get with people on a day-to-day basis. No, absolutely. I I think um, my husband really helped me figure that out when I was in early recovery. Uh, Even though I was still figuring myself out and I had a crew of people that were going through the same thing, it was almost ingrained in me to not want to share that stuff. Like growing Mm -hmm. up in a household where there was a lot of stuff happening uh, around us and it was kind of like, well, you just soldier on, you know, you got to look after the number one in life, you know, you soldier on, you do what you need to do and there's certain merit to that, right, in not getting because we live in a very emotional world where it's almost like you don't just become a parent anymore you become a psychologist and you become you know a physiotherapist and you have to know <laughs> like everything yeah. in order to like kind of do things well in societal standards and I remember dating him and everyone would be like oh you know how was your day and he would just start to share oh you know she's experiencing this I'd be like oh excuse me it was like yes filter what you're saying but it was good because I noticed that I really struggled to relate to people and Mm. I thought that was because maybe I was just a bit weird I was a bit awkward Uh, you know I definitely didn't have a very social high school year Uh, you know I was swimmer head down just do what you need to do and when he started revealing me, people actually started liking me more and checking in on me and like inviting me out for coffee. And I was like, mm. what, what is this? Like it was like a, a secret source, you know, yeah. just just be who you are, like be honest and see who gravitates towards you. It's yeah. beautiful. It is, isn't it? It's yeah. like that, just be authentic and the right people will be drawn to you. Mm-hmm. Amazing. All right. Wow. We're already diving into it. And I just want to give people an opportunity to get to know who you are. So before we get into the meaty business, can we Mm. kick it off with you sharing where do you live? What does an average day look like? And Mm. what do you do for fun? Well, I live in Melbourne in a beautiful spot in Kew. Very green, luckily. Uh, Kind of shifted there when COVID happened. So we're quite, quite blessed to have kind of a family area. Um, so I, um, I'm semi-retired, you know, part-time coach and mentor people. So I do a lot of, I've been blessed to be able to do a lot of things on my own terms, have a lot of autonomy 
um, you know, spend a couple of hours after I do school drop off um, at the gym and then I'll go and like catch up on my own life admin or whatever I see fit and then do the parenting stuff and then we'll like do some coaching or, you know, stuff at night. So my life is um, pretty flexible and I have to admit I do do that for fun. You know, I, I enjoy being a part of people's lives. I enjoy um, being able to chat with them on a daily basis and figure out, you know, what's what what's hurting them, how do we help them, how do we help people thrive um, and yeah, it's the same with like having a bit of social time in the morning. I like having a life outside of parenthood as well. I've never been a pin interest mum. Um, I enjoy, you know, just being able to show my two girls, uh, what a woman who knows what she wants and goes after it looks like, mm. but without sacrificing, um, the more important things before it. And so, you know, they, they also have a lot of time with us. They have a, they, they know that, you know, we are there and, we support them and we're, we spend a lot of time with them, but they also see us kicking goals and achieving. And I think that's really important for me. And that is fun. You know, winning is more fun than fun is fun. <laughs> I love that. I love that. That's beautiful. All right, let's dive into your photo then. Greena, I've asked you to bring in a photo today from a time in your life where you were hiding behind a smile. So this is from a time where you were projecting one version of yourself out into the world, but the reality was you're internally, you were struggling. Mm -hmm. Can you describe for our listeners who can't see the photo right now, but you can check it out at Mm ashbutters.com. What am I looking at in this photo and what was going on for you at that time in your life? So just to be clear, we got the the one on the ceiling because I think I sent you two. Mm, Yeah. So there was one where I was sitting on a, a rail. I was living in Sydney at the time and I just could not get a hold of life. Right. And I think both photos were for for Sydney. So I'll just kind of describe that area of life. Um, My drinking had taken such a hiatus that it wasn't a a weekly um, weekend binge anymore. Like, you know, you kind of get out of school and, you know, it's fun hanging out. You're you're free from all responsibility. You get your own place outside of living with your parents anymore. And so like the Thursday through to Sunday sessions, like it was just full pelt. And then you'd grow up and kind of have Monday to Thursday where you kind of sobered up. Mm. And that was okay. Like that was a bit of fun. There was some mistakes and some embarrassments along that way. But when I went to Sydney, um, you know, I was kind of dating a guy at the time and I couldn't even put it together. Like I remember sometimes he'd come home and I was just passed out, you know, because I was lonely and I had no idea what I was doing with my life. And I'd try to go for long walks around this beautiful city and I just could not figure out why I felt so unhappy. What inspired the move to Sydney? Uh, Terror. <laughs> I um, Oh gosh, there's, there's so many crazy drinking stories. So here it is, you know, I remember I was working at a real estate office and I just went out one night, caught up with some people, met them along the way and they said, hey, we've got a boat, we're going to go up to North Stradbroke Island. And I was like, cool, that sounds like fun. And we just kept drinking for like three to four days. And by the time I actually came to it, um, you know, there was missing persons out on me. <laughs> My work had no idea where I was. And, you know, it was just and the only thing that I knew how to do at that time was just to carry on the lie. And so, like, I didn't even know how to own my mistake. I kind of went, yeah, I, I don't know. Like, I was just out. Like, and I, I couldn't be honest about the fact that I had chosen to just do a hiatus and scare everyone around me. Mm. So you um, were like 20, 21 at the time? I was probably, yeah, I'd say 20, 21, probably, yeah. Yeah, and then um, and so I was so embarrassed to go back to that war- workforce and kind of face the music that I, you know, was kind of seeing this guy at the time and I went, hey, can I, can I come see you in Sydney? And I just kind of moved there for like the next year and a half. That's one of the best <laughs> geographical stories I've ever heard. Wow. Thank you. Thank you. It's as well. It is what it is, right? It's like, and I remember I even had to move to another house at that point. Um, I moved out for like a week and a half to another place thinking that would change things. And I just realized, no, no, Gold Coast isn't enough. I need, I, you know, if I'm going to do stuff like that, I need to go and be somewhere else. And I tried to press reset on my life and it probably works for a couple of weeks, but then things start to kind of spiral back into you know, what it was like when you actually got to that point in the first place. Mm. So the Gold Coast is where you grew up? No, I'm, I'm a bit of a gypsy. My, um, I was born in uh, northern New South Wales and then spent a big part of my childhood in Ipswich, flew up to Cairns where my dad got a, um, you know, d- district manager of mental health position up there in northern Queensland. And we spent a few years there. It was amazing. Um, and then we went to Strabroke Island and then across to the mainland. And so we're kind of, 
you know, a family that moves around a lot. So I've probably had to up and change my life in different schools probably four to five times. Mm. I imagine that would have been really challenging. Yeah, it was, especially when you're a geek and you don't really know how to relate to people. Mm. Uh, Northern Queensland was actually a real blessing for me, though, because I feel like it was such a small community that everyone just needed to know each other. Mm. And that's where I found swimming. I found an arena to win in and that gave me a... And an ability to focus the obsession and the the mental illness that was slowly developing in me into something else for a while. And so that was kind of the silver lining in it all that I realised that I was quite a competitive person um, Mm. and that I can apply myself and I'm not totally like lost for. So I had these certain areas that started to, to pick up steam. Um, and then when we moved off that, you know, I got in the Surf Lifesaving Club at Strawbrake Island. It was more social and that's when, you know, drinking started. And it's like, oh, this is more fun than, you know, watching a black line. And so, you know, the the need for acceptance and the me- need to like have fun and kind of stop overthinking life, you know, just kind of took over. And so my swimming career officially ended when I was about 16. Yeah, it's funny you say that. I, I have another friend of mine with a similar story, a very, very talented swimmer and then she actually skipped a year to mm. compete and met us. And we were such big drinkers that unfortunately it played a part in, in, in her, the trajectory of her life. And I think it's really interesting how being exposed to alcohol and drugs at a young age can really be a sliding doors moment for a lot of people. Mm. Yeah, it can. Um, you know, especially when, you know, I, I never really fit in with my social circle. So when you're drinking, it's like you do attract the fair weather friends, mm. everyone that likes to go out and have fun and party. And it creates an identity in yourself that you're not, that you don't usually get in everyday life. You know, you know, we can make fun of ourselves and we can be stupid and we can dance and we can, you know, pretend as though we have no cares in the world while we're out together. And then the next day we're kind of like on our own, you know, nursing our head and kind of getting over it. Mm. But at least we had that, like that, we had that identity. That's how people see us. And I'm okay if people just see me that way, as long as I don't see everything else that's involved. Mm. And, um, and I didn't really want to bring people into that either. Like it was kind of my own little space, you know, my own little like dark circle that I kept within myself. And, uh, and so it was, it was very cool that I could draw upon that during that time and go, well, you know, if I'm still having fun here and if people think that I'm okay, then life must be okay. Of course, right? And that's the whole idea. We just hide behind this smile. And in a way, I know for me, I became so good at lying to myself that I didn't even know what was wrong. Like I didn't even realise how bad it had gotten in a way because you're just being fueled by this disease of denial. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned that you were a bit of a geek. What happened when you took alcohol? Oh, I became very funny. <laughs> I, I just I became someone without limitations. Um, and I also, as a teenager, struggled with an eating disorder. Um, and so I stopped thinking about that. The, the obsession of trying to control everything stopped. And it's almost like the opposing person to who I was when I was sober took over. And um, I really enjoyed that because, you know, we always compare our worst trait to someone's best trait. And so it's almost like, you know, that's what I was doing when I became, uh, when I had a couple of drinks in me, I became that character. And so I was always comparing myself to this version that had absolutely no bounds. Mm. And and I enjoyed being her for a while, but when I woke up, I'd also be slightly embarrassed, (laughs) you know. That's how people expected me to keep up that pretense all the time, which is where the distance between myself became larger and larger. Because I remember seeing my my cousin once; she was working at a takeaway shop um, around where my mum lives, and I was kind of sharing some stories. And she's like, "Oh, well, you know, what's going on with you now? Like, what's what's happening?" Because people got so used to the gregarious, like the fun-loving, the witty. Mm-hmm. And it was very sarcastic too, so it was very offensive. <laughs> but innocent face, you know, saved me a lot of fights over the years. And, and I, I just didn't have any of that when I was sober. And, uh, and I just I started judging myself very harshly, like, what's wrong with you? Why can't you be like this all the time? Mm. So I just kept drinking more to keep up with that. Yeah. Can we go back a moment? I'd love to get a bit more of an understanding of those earlier years for you growing up. What was that environment like and at what age did this eating disorder start to develop within you? Mm. Well, life was difficult when I was young, Um, you know, for for all parties really in my family. Um, You know, my dad raised us 
my mum left when I was very young. She, she, you know, she had some mental health. She, she was left by her mum as well. So it was a bit of a generational issue that happens. She can understand that with many years that pass. And, you know, so we kind of went in and out of this, like, you know, dad was trying to work. We were being raised by babysitters, grandparents. And, you know, for a period of time, mum wanted us back, but she couldn't actually do that. And there was, there was a lot of, um, I'd say traumatic experiences that we had. Mum ended up in a mental institution for two years uh, and we were all just trying to recoup from that, you know, and, and both of them had three ma- kind of three main partners in their life, each other. Then they went to marry another partner. My mum had, uh, you know, had two more children with a guy who was physically abusive to her. And, you know, when we were back in her care, we saw some of this stuff. And, and so there was just a lot of mess, you know, as well as mum and dad never really been on the same page, always fighting every time they were around each other over phone calls. And we had um, domestic disputes and, um, you know, lawyers that were brought into that to try and figure out, sit us down, how are you going? And I just didn't know how to talk anymore, you know, because there was so much noise going on around me. The only, the only coping mechanism that I started to form was this fantasy land. Like I remember being out in the garden and there'd be lizards and I'd be thinking they're dragons and, you know, that was a princess to be saved and, mm. you know, you, you kind of create scenarios because they were more interesting than your own and, you know, we had show and tell and I'd bring a, an ornament from home and I made up this huge story that I was at SeaWorld on the weekend with my parents and, mm. like, you know, this is the trophy they gave me for swimming with the dolphins and everyone thought it was the most amazing story. Even I did. I'm like, wow, look at you go. Mm. <laughs> you know? And then you see the reaction and like your tiny little brain goes, when I tell big stories, that's when I get attention and that's when I'm lovable. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But it doesn't take too long before people start to figure that out. You know, I remember my year two teacher talking to my dad and he just looked through and he's like, that didn't happen. Like, you know, and so she'd have to sit me down, but she was very cautious too. And Um, You know, when my dad married his second wife, unbeknownst to him, she was physically abusive towards us for four years. She was um, also a fellow alcoholic, ended up with MS in her later years of life. And, you know, we'd come to school in the middle of summer with long sleeve shirts on because we were so bruised. Mm. And, And so there was just like a lot of stuff that happened along the way that made me not trust people, but also not trust my own opinion because there was like, there was just nothing really stable to grab onto. Mm. Um, And hence, like when you become a teenager, you're like, you start learning about all this stuff that they try and teach you how to avoid. And I remember learning about anorexia and bulimia and my brain just went, oh, that's interesting. Mm. You know, it's like, they're trying to teach you how to stay away from that. But my brain kind of went, well, that actually looks like a fun experiment. Mm. Yeah. And that was like the next 13 years of my life. Wow. Mm. Far out. Do you see your relationship with food as a way that you were trying to control what seemed to be an uncontrollable life? Absolutely. Yeah. It was um, because I've always enjoyed food, even in my adult years, now that I don't have any issues with it. And by the way, as an adult, I can't tell you how much fasting has allowed me to have more mind-to-body connection uh, and and so like I can eat freely and enjoy it but like as a kid and as like uh, you know as as a young lesson like I always found so much emotional satisfaction in eating mm. you know and so and then it would go too far it's like that obsession already started to kick in because it's like I can't just enjoy it I want to enjoy it all the way till like I start to feel sick and hate myself and then want to try and do something about it to get rid of that feeling mm. and so you know I feel like it kind of got birth from a love of food, but I didn't have any like control maintenance. Like I actually had nothing to balance that out. And, and so that's where the eating disorder kind of started. It was the only thing it was, even though it was a bad spiral, it was my spiral. Mm. And I, I never understood it. Like I never understood it. I did know that, you know, people were saying to me, you're getting really skinny. And I, I enjoyed going to the gym. I going, I, I enjoyed swimming, but I also enjoyed the satisfaction of like, yeah, I'm, I'm doing that. Like I'm the one who's creating that. Mm. And, um, and so even though it wasn't positive, it was also, yeah, there was a certain amount where I was like, I'm, I'm doing this, mm. I'm in control of this mm. and there's nothing anyone else can do about that. Mm. And like, I think we're, we're pretty similar age. When I was 12, 13, 14, 15, like skinny was it. Mm, skinny yeah. was like that's well, the 90s was gross Paris Hilton Nicole Richie like those yep. like that's what I was looking at back when we 
Sounds so old here. <laughs> when we read magazines. <laughs> well, I was thinking that too. Those magazines like the, is it Guess Who or something oh, like that? Who like, magazine who mag- and like Guess Dolly, Girlfriend. <laughs> all those. Oh, that's right. Yep. Yeah, Cleo. Yep. And it would just be flooded with all of these super, super skinny girls. Super skinny. So when I was restricting my eating and then I was getting um, – whether it was a compliment or even just an observation that I'd lost weight, mm. in my mind I went, tick, Yep, that's a good thing. Yeah, it's working. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. How did you navigate your recovery? You mentioned that you in, today have a healthy relationship with food. How did that come about? Well, I feel like when I got sober it all came hand in hand. Um, the 12-step program is very liberating with self-understanding, um, removing the rose-coloured glasses and, you know, the – I read somewhere that the opposite to addiction is community. Mm. And a lot of time in addiction, uh, I was just trying to figure everything out on my own. And I obviously wasn't very good at it. (laughs) But I still felt like, you know, I'm not going to bother people. I don't want to involve people in my mess. It's not worth their time. I don't deserve to have someone, you know, help me out with this. And it was a couple of times my dad tried to really come by my side and ask me what's going on and I just couldn't bring myself to involve someone else in the mess. Mm. You know, I've, I always thought I, I can find a way out of it, I'll figure this out and I, you know, just didn't want to bother people. And and when I realised that, you know, I needed to and I needed to have a community, I remember the first time, because um, I actually went into a rehab first, I had a detox and a rehab for six and a half months and so they almost, and it was very humiliating, you know, I'm, I'm 23 years old, I'm in a young adult's rehab with, um, you know, jailbirds, heroin addicts, and, you know, you, you name it, the stories are vast. And I just thought to myself, like, what did you do to get here? Because I never saw myself as really that bad. But then I started to understand that, you know, I really didn't know how to do life. And I mm. didn't know how to you know, look after myself properly. And so they'd do simple stuff. They'd do basic things like chores in the morning and, you know, you'd have to stand up in front of people and and have confrontational conversations. Mm. And I hated it because I knew how to compliment people, but I didn't know how to have confrontation. Like, I feel this way rather than you did this. Yes. Oh, it was so basic, but it was so hard. Yeah. This is really hard. The stuff that we're meant to learn that if you grow up in an alcoholic home, you just you don't. You're not showing that. No, because they all kind of figure it out on their own, right? And I, I get it. I'm, I'm really good at zooming out now and figure out like my dad was raised from a war kind of like, you know, generation. And there's a lot of trauma that happened back then. And the only way they knew how to deal with it, they don't have the resources that we do today, is you just have to soldier on, do what you need to do, mm. feed your family and just get on with it. We're lucky to be alive. Mm. You know, if you if you had parents that came home from war, you were one of the lucky ones. So what are you complaining about? Yeah. And then we grew up with this, like they didn't really have the I love yous in their household. They were, you know, and they, they also had to, you know, s- survive to a certain extent. And now we live in a world where it's like, oh, but emotions matter, <laughs> you know. And we're all adapting together. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, it kind of makes sense as to why I got to that point. But, you know, if it runs in your family, it, it has to run into your family till it runs into you. You know, we always mm. have a choice. Once we become 18, we're no longer a victim because we're not only children and animals are victims. You know, mm. they have no other choice. But as soon as you turn 18, you actually have an adult, you have uh, adult responsibilities and you have adult decisions to make. And that includes like, do I really want to be living this way? Mm. So you got sober, like we said, at a really young age, 23. Can you talk to me about that period, 18 to 23? There must have been a hell of a lot that happened for you to get to the point where you'd had enough at, at such a young age. Oh, this is a <laughs> there is a life in that period of time for sure. Um, it wouldn't be a, a good story without like, you know, an intoxicating love affair that happened during that period that was, you know, slightly dependent and toxic on my end mostly. Was this the Sydney move? No, this no, no, no. This one. was before. Mm. Yeah, this was before. We met and I just like fell head over heels not knowing how to process that feeling. I'd never felt that way before about anyone. First and love. The first love, mm. yeah. Well, yeah. I did have a first boyfriend but this was like the, you know, the one that really messes with you. Yeah, you know, rocks your world. Breaks everything up, tears it down and then – he was only in my life for a couple of years and 
you know, during that time, um, we were very on and off all the time. And I did do a brief stint to Sydney before the, what we were talking about earlier. And, you know, I was working at um, pubs and clubs and just doing what I needed to get by drinking with people while I was working you know partying after I'd be at work and then sleep a couple of hours then get back up and do the same thing and you know when I decided to come back to Queensland after a couple of months of doing that I um I had a massive car accident I had a 100k head on with another car about an hour from home it was late at night you know there was bauxite in the road um and my my back wheels kind of slid out and I freaked out wanting to turn off the road mm. but it locked up and kind of 360 and hit the incoming car and I didn't have any airbags in my car. Oh my gosh. So I um, I kind of had a smashed jaw. I had my three front teeth in my navel cavity. I broke my femur, my foot, um, you know, my whole lip was detached nearly. It was like just barely hanging on by a strand and I had to be taken to an intensive care for a couple of weeks the only reason I got let out of that after that was because my dad was a registered nurse and he oh took me gosh. back and looked after me I uh, couldn't walk for six plus months Karina yeah so there was like a, That's a, a huge, huge trauma huge accident but here's the funny thing about like experiencing a trauma like that when you've already been through trauma mm. I remember having that happen. I was awake through the whole thing and I couldn't I just couldn't figure out like why can't I get out of this car you know it doesn't you know it the shock in my body, I couldn't feel any pain yet. I knew that my face, why can't I see my face in the revision mirror? It doesn't make sense that I can't see the face that I usually look at because it was like blood everywhere. And um, and the one voice that came into my head at that moment was, mm, you've really messed yourself up this time. <laughs> God, I don't know why I'm feeling so emotional right now. It just makes me feel so sad. It is sad, but here's like <sighs> when you have – had to survive Mm. a certain life you've got so many protectors involved and that was just another like I put myself through that trauma after the car accident but I already had these protectors that were like yep no we're not going to feel this we're Mm. not going to experience this and so even in the hospital after I'd get out of like hours and hours like eight hours for my leg surgery people were coming to see me they had tears in their eyes like Mm. what's going on with you and I would be making jokes to make them feel better yeah and it was like you're so removed from any kind of like I think that's what's hurting. Like mm. as I hear this story, to think that there's that little girl in there that that was so adept at having to do that that you just snapped straight back into survivor mode. Mm-hmm. Like a blessing and a curse. Yeah, I'm so sorry that happened to you. Thank you. Oh so how what I mean, how did you recover from that? Um painkillers helped. <laughs> Well, you, did you ever find that you had any sort of addiction to painkillers? No, no, that no. was that one. That one was fast moving because I remember I had to go live with my dad for a while, and he already knew I was a bit off the rails at that point. And I remember I went to a. It was like I had like a cocktail of all these, you know, painkillers that they were giving me at that point for the first month, especially. And I think it was about a month and a half later we went to the GP together, and we were going to get a redose of prescription. And I remember he said oh, I'm going to take you off these ones, which were kind of the addictive ones. The opioids. And don't. Yes, yeah. thank you. And my dad specifically went in there because he knew this would happen. And like unbeknownst to me, this emotional reaction just went, no, 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 I need them. You know, and there was like this, mm. <laughs> this like monster was born. And then I kind of sat back and realised what I had done. And I went, you know what, you're the doctor. That's fine. I'll, yeah. I'll do it. And so we had to slowly take me off that because I already had that. Like, no, 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 I need these. I need these to survive, mm. you know, in order not to feel. And and so, like, even when I started coming off of them, um, you know, said intoxication relationship came back into my life. And, you know, that was very unstable. Um, you know, I started drinking again, you know, tried to work, had a lot of panic attacks, you know, just being around trying to catch public transport um, you know, I had a, a, a friend of mine who took me into his real estate office on the Gold Coast. It was really nice of him to give me work. It gave me some things to do, but I was still very messy. And he was very much into personal development. I remember him putting on audios and, you know, recommending books to me as much as he could. And that sowed a seed with me. Mm. You know, uh, I remember someone recommending The Secret at that point. Mm. And so like all this little stuff kind of comes in and You read a little bit of it, but it's just like it's enough to go, okay, like I kind of get that, but I'm not really willing to to understand that yet. Um, And self-development and personal development has become a huge part of my life. 
you know, at the moment, even though I'm 13 years sober, I'm currently doing a new round of therapy called Internal Family Systems. Mm, IFS, yes. Oh, it's, it's amazing. Mm. It is amazing. And talk about reaching that inner child. I've cried more times in the last six sessions, so maybe, you know, eight weeks that I've been kind of going through some of this stuff mm. um, than I ever have in the last 10 years. Like, you know, just actually feeling the pain that is locked in there and little bit by little bit trying to let that out. Uh, what have you uncovered about the different protector parts? And I know there's like the, the firefighter and the, I mean, it's just a fascinating modality. It really is. It's, it's, it's the opposite to a 12-step program, I think, sometimes because 12 steps for me was, you know, it was, it was hard for me to understand when I was looking at it from a distance, but easy to do. And IFS was simple to understand, hard to do. <laughs> Yeah, so that's how great, it's opposite. Great way to describe yeah. it. Mm-hmm. So I feel like I kind of understood. I'm like, oh, yeah, I, t- I got this, you know, and what I'm starting to realise is I have a lot of protectors. I have a lot of managerial parts that don't want me to feel emotion. Um, I don't have a good relationship with being a very emotional person, even though I'm massively empathetic. I'll cry as soon as I see other people hurting or crying, but I can't access my own. Mm. And so IFS has been able to, you know, has sort of let me – make peace with you know pain guilt sorrow um you know that stuff that's actually in there and 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 also being proud of the fact that I've had some really beautiful parts protect me from that along the way like the car accident story Mm. um like I don't I actually have a lot of respect for Mm. the fact that that's what it did to protect me through those times I'm I don't have any guilt I don't feel sad about that I'm like yeah that that helped me survive like that's gorgeous Mm. It's incredible the kind of work that you can do, you know, chatting to somebody with 13 years of continuous sobriety, how time and time again when I speak to people in recovery, it seems like the longer you stay sober, the better you get to know yourself. Mm. And it's funny because I'm three and a half years, so you've got a decade on me and already I feel like I've uncovered so much. Like it just excites me beyond measure to imagine where I'm going to be mm. in 10 years from now. Like it's just so, so cool to know that this journey never ends. Never ends. And you can just keep going deeper. Gorgeous. Yeah, oh, I love learning from other people's stories. Mm. I love um, – and that's a big part of my life, same as yourself, Ash, we were talking about that because if anyone's listening, this is like officially our first date. We haven't yes. actually had a chance to sit down <laughs> and properly. talk properly. <laughs> that's going really well, by the way. know. <laughs> <laughs> so in the rooms you get to do that. Like sometimes – you don't know how you feel until you hear someone communicate it. And I love that people can kind of – so I've with the IFS stuff, I feel like it was brought on by an, an emotional disruption. You know, I started to feel a bit lost. I started to feel a bit disconnected in some of my important relationships. And so I was recommended to start this just to – because that may be the firefighter we were talking about, something that comes up and goes, all right, well, you know, we're cutting you off and, like, you know, you're going to get distracted over here and it takes me away from my main purpose – and so I started delving into that because I'm, I'm never one to accept the first message. Like if it doesn't line up with what I want ultimately, I'm like, no, I don't accept this. Like let's figure out what's really going on. Mm. And in the rooms I had a, a, a good friend of both of ours probably, uh, she got up and she's like, you know, God put to me like this, what's the difference between a, a mental breakdown and a spiritual awakening? <laughs> Because the result, like the process looks the same, right? When you're going through this huge spiritual awakening or this, you know, mental breakdown, it's like it looks exactly the same. It does. The difference is the result that it gives you. Mm. Like the ultimate outcome of who you become. Like if you tear your life apart and you, you kind of ruin everything around you, that's a mental breakdown. Mm. You know, but a spiritual awakening, you might have some of that. But if you come out on top and you come out with a more understanding, loving version of yourself and a more vulnerable and raw kind of essence of who you are, then it was 100% a spiritual awakening. And I'm hoping that's exactly what I'm going through currently. Yeah. <laughs> a little bit of both at the moment though. <laughs> I absolutely love that. I think it's brilliant because that's that's the thing, isn't it? I always, when I'm talking to other women in recovery and they're going through difficult experiences and moments, you know, I always try to explain that there's – there's a meaning, there's a purpose to it. And when you come out the other side of that, not only is your experience going to be richer, your life experience, but what you can then pass on and share with another human, that's the gift. Like that's the secret source to me and that's why we stick around. Mm-hmm. 
But it's painful, you know, it's it's the lotus. Like we have to grow through the mud. We have to sit in the shit mm-hmm. and get really okay with being uncomfortable and feeling all of the feelings that we do in sobriety without numbing them out. On the other side of that, we get growth. Mm. We get new experience and a new lens on life over and over again. Yeah. Well, even in business journey, if I could change hats here for a second, I've always felt very uncomfortable teaching and preaching. Uh, it's always about sharing what you know, your life experience, you know, how you got to the places that you have, what you're currently doing, not what a book said that was potentially hypothesis mm. of what's potentially available. You know, it's, it is an experiential thing. And AA has really been the essence that we brought into that um, because it is, it's everything we do is it's sharing. Mm. You know, if, if you have people around you that always go, yeah, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know what you're talking about. Like just because you read a meme on Instagram does not mean that you know. <laughs> <laughs> totally. It's like what life experience can you actually acknowledge that you have developed through that purpose, through that meaning of what we're talking about? And that's when you know. That's when you've got applied knowledge and experiential wisdom. And and so I feel like life is like sports, business, you know, you name it. It's it's all experiential. And we have to get comfortable winning messy. We have to get comfortable winning ugly. Mm. Nothing is ever going to be perfect because if you get that good experience comes from bad experience. Mm. And the only way you get bad experience is by making bad judgment calls. Mm. You know, and people wonder, like, why is it this person seems to be on top? Why is it this person has made it through so many difficult seasons? It's like, because I made a lot of bad decisions along the way. Mm. And now I've got some articulation as to what I'm doing. But it was messy as hell. Mm. You just, as you speak about that, it reminds me of the 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 man in the arena, mm. the, the Winston Churchill speech and just like how – People That's can, a great saying. Yeah, people can sit on the sidelines and, and observe or, or you can get in and get messy and have the lived experience and, like, they're the people that are going to continue to evolve and grow in this life. Like, I know where I'd rather be. Oh, yeah. You know. In the arena, for sure. Like, you know, on the playing field, mm. you know, because it is – the life is full of people that will give you their judgments. Mm. They will – you know, even when I was, you know, not even sober – People would be happily to tell you all their points of success about life, but that doesn't mean that they've got any form of fruit in that area. You mm. know, like I think you need this. Like even when I got sober, so many people are like, you're not that bad. You mm. you just need to learn how to control your <laughs> drinking. And I'd be like, man, if I knew how to do that, I wouldn't be here. Exactly right. <laughs> exactly right. Oh, my gosh. It's so true. I want to circle back just a moment uh, around you mentioned that you had gotten to a point in your recovery where you were feeling just maybe a little bit disconnected or something I don't want to put words in your mouth though can you describe like for everybody listening what were the things that were going on for you internally that led you to think hmm I might need to explore this further like what stops you from resting on your laurels at 13 years sober oh well, I've rested on my laurels a couple of times. I've, I've always been pretty close to not doing well in recovery. Mm-hmm. I've, I remember, uh, okay, when I first started recovery, there was so many things that I hung on to. Like one of the mottos was in recovery, you have to learn how to do the exact opposite to everything you've ever done. And so I had no qualms stop my association. I didn't hang out with the same people anymore. I moved. Uh, I didn't do... You know, I kind of I flipped a switch, you know, and I went, okay, well, that world's not working for me. If I'm going to give myself any sort of go in recovery, I need to try and do this. And I was very logical with the mottos. Mm. And and so and they, they even said in the first year, like, don't do anything strenuous. Don't have a relationship. Don't get a job, all that kind of stuff. So I'm like, cool, I'm just doing recovery. Mm. And, <laughs> and so I did that. Yeah. You know, I did all those things because I knew how destructive my life was. And, and so I probably just did meetings and recovery and psychology appointments. Like I dug in. In the first year of my sobriety, that was the baseline. And because I was terrified of returning to my previous life, even if people didn't understand what was profoundly going on internally, if they could only see on the outside, because some people didn't see me drinking at night on my own, waking up the next day, having a shot of something to get on with the day. 
Like all they saw was that person, yeah, you got a bit out of hand every now and again. But then I'd literally do a runner and go find a a new social group of friends to like go associate with. So no one really saw how bad it was. And so in that first 18 months, all I did was meetings, you know, all that kind of stuff. And then someone also stood up. I have no idea if these people, by the way, are still in the rooms. That's the beauty, the, the beauty of like a 12-step program. And he said, I don't do the program perfectly. I just don't pick up that first drink. Mm. And that's always stuck with me too. Like no matter how I'm feeling, no matter how much, if I have cravings, if I have dreams that are haunting me when I wake up and I think, oh, did I just did I just relapse? Because <laughs> oh. right? they're so real. They are so real. And they're like, I wake up with sweat sometimes. I'm like, no, I haven't had that first drink. And I remember putting myself in a situation where I was hanging out with an old friend and he was like, yeah, yeah, you can't drink, but I could easily sneak off, you know? And I did have that, that voice inside my head be like, you'll be fine. Just try one, you know, it'll make this whole experience so much better. Mm. And then that person from the rooms came into my head. It's the first drink mm. that gets you drunk. I'm like, okay, I'm just going to go home. Mm. You know, and that's some of the mottos like really do keep you steady. Like, Because I imagine the further away you get from your last drink, the more your mind would tell you you couldn't possibly be an alcoholic. Oh, this one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there has been that come yeah. to my head because uh, in the first couple of years it was why me? Like, mm. If my sister experienced the same life as me, why isn't she an alcoholic? And yeah. Nearly everyone in my family likes to drink, but they never had the the isms or the issue that I did of yeah. taking it too far. And so, yeah, when I I'd had a certain amount of years up, I'm like, oh, well, maybe I was just dysfunctional. Mm-hmm. Now that I've done some work on myself, maybe I'm okay. Like you watch Suits and all these Hollywood TV shows and films and you think, gee, they make Drinking looks sexy. Mm. <laughs> I was just never sexy drinking. <laughs> <laughs> you see the Hollywood version and then you've got to remember the reality. <laughs> the reality of the panda bear eyes and the frizzed hair and like the, you know, I, I have to admit I was pretty pretty funny sometimes when I was drinking, like scaling buildings, all that kind of stuff. I turned into a like a cat woman of types. But then I also woke up one night, like one, one morning and I had like bruising all down the side of my face and my arms because I fell off trying to scale a building, you know. So it's like, was it really that fun, mm. you know? Yeah. Was it? And so, you know, when you, when you are in the down times and you are starting to experience doubt, you should never forget where you came from because at the end of the day, if, my, if I just have to stop drinking, you know, it's like my, my life is so much better. And so I don't actually need drinking for it to get better. Mm. And I'd prefer not to take the risk, especially when you start to achieve in life, you start to have more responsibilities. You know, I feel like the hardest thing I ever did was build a business, Mm. build a business network. It challenged me coaching and mentoring other people when you didn't feel like you had the the confidence or the success in life to be having someone follow you. Mm. You know, that was harder than parenthood and marriage for me Mm. because like, you know, the, these are people that are kind of taking you on, you know, what it is, the message that you're putting out there and you have to have the integrity to follow through on that. And back yourself 100%. Mm. You know, with marriage, there's another person involved. With parenting, there's little people involved. But, yeah, starting your own business, like you're out on your own. You are, absolutely. And we were lucky that we did have guidance along the way. But when it comes to the practicalities of the day-to-day discipline, yes, you are on your own. Um, and but I feel like it gave us a, a bit of a baseline to then have, uh, you know, children as an example is modelling. Mm. People think parenting is knowing what to do in certain situations, but kids look at what you do; they don't listen to what you say. Because mm. <laughs> like, yeah, if I'm screaming at my child, I'd be like, "Grace, <laughs> like do this," she's gonna scream back at me, mm. you know, because she's like, "Why are you screaming at me?" Mm. Like, it's, well, well, that's what we do. Mm. Right. And so if I try and talk to her on a low tone and level with her, she'll start to level with me. So it is everything in life is spelt example. Mm. Mm. So help me understand. I just want to go back again. Through It sounds like throughout your years, the last 13 years, you've had moments or times where you've been really in the pocket, doing recovery, being a mum, working, everything's aligning. And then there's also been these sort of waves, these ebbs and flows where things have felt maybe a little off the beam. Mm-hmm. How, what's your barometer? Like what's your internal sense check? What 
is it that lets you know things are maybe off a little bit and what do you do to plug back in? Mm. Oh, that's a tough question, Um, especially because I feel like my whole life, even up until the last few months, has been fighting. You know, every time you get pushed back down, you stand back up. You know, it's the whole, you know, do the opposite, ignore your feelings, keep moving. But I, I'm starting to understand that, like, even when I first got sober and I had a lot of happiness in early sobriety, it was because I submitted. I'd actually put my hands up and I went, okay, I'm not in control anymore and I just need to free flow. And that does come with a lot of God consciousness. You know, we, we live in a society that a lot of people in my present company included, like, my name is Karina, I am your friend. <laughs> <laughs> I only talk about what I've had to learn in the process of, like, we have these um, kind of God complexes you know, thinking we control everything and anyone without a God, a God presence in our, in our being. Mm. And, and so that's when I know that I'm off. If I'm starting to try to control everything, if I'm starting to get to a point where everything is pissing me off, including the person that just cut me off in front of me, mm. you know, even like the kids, are, they're so disrespectful, they're so disobedient, you know, uh, like business owners, like why is everyone so dysfunctional in the world that we live in? You know, if I get to that point where all that's coming out of my mouth is negative, then I'm actually off off key. Mm. Like I'm not doing well. If I'm judging people outside of myself, I'm off key. Mm. And so the only way that I know how to come back to that is to submit and to kind of like start to pray more, start to dig into my God relationship that I have, my relationship. Because I don't think that spirituality is a religious thing. Mm. I think it's relational. If you're not talking relationally to someone that you care about or have a relationship with, you don't have intimacy. Mm. And when you don't have intimacy in that relationship, then it's like that kind of what we were saying, the opposite to addiction is community. So if you don't have community with your spiritual relationship, then you're back in addiction. Mm. And it doesn't have to come in drugs or drinking. It starts to become about my need for other people to validate me you know, even as, as subtle as it is, I feel like social media can be that for us. Mm. As, as women, like we want, we want people to appreciate us. We're like the little girls, you know, like, look at my dress, isn't it beautiful? You know, we love the validation, not because we're, you know, uh, tarty or anything like that. It's like we want the world to see us as beautiful. Mm. And when we're validated, we feel beautiful. Mm. But what one of the greatest things in in having a spiritual relationship is that when you have that spirituality you do feel accepted and beautiful as you are you don't need that external fix from other people Mm. you know or at least it minimizes yeah it's it's less intense Mm. it's like for me like I know I'm running well when I can get that from within yes and there's that internal connection which then connects me to something greater than myself yeah, it's hard to explain, isn't it? Mm, like it, it really, really is. is. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Karina, you've lived a really big life over the last 13 years and you've done lots of things that I imagine a lot of people wouldn't know how to do sober. Things like getting married, dating even. What would you just say to somebody who is listening at the moment and they're young? They're the same age you were, they're 23, and they're thinking there's just no way that I could get sober now. My life would be over. I know, like, that's the story I was telling myself at 32. I remember that story. (laughs) (laughs) So, like, I mean, you're proof that that's not the case. But what did you need to hear at that time? Or what would you want to share? Well, I did have those thoughts. I remember getting into sobriety and I thought, oh, gosh, this is going to be so boring, like, surely when I get married then I'll have to drink at my wedding and if I lose someone I care about then surely I'll have to drink about that and I had all these if then and maybes and I was like you know but I'll approach that when when it gets to it and I suppose it was like it it is a daily thing when it comes to recovery it's it's a daily awakening it's a daily experience and they always say keep it in the day and so for that day I just didn't want to drink all right let's just keep it in that day actually sponsoring someone at the moment who's going through some huge life challenges and you know she always had a day when this happened then I'll, I'll definitely have to drink but like mm. each day that passes she's slowly starting to bring that guard down it's like you know for ta- today I don't want it to happen so let's just keep it in the day 
and I feel like I've accumulated just 13 years of days, mm. you know, because I honestly wake up now and I just I couldn't think of anything worse than drinking. Mm. You know, the amount of destruction and havoc it landed in my life, like when you build real connection and when you start to apologise to people you've hurt in the past, and albeit not everyone accepts it, um, you just start to feel proud of yourself and that wasn't a feeling I was used to I never felt proud of myself growing up even in all my swimming achievements it was always about were you proud of me it was never that I was proud of me Mm. and so I would have when I was in active alcoholism and addiction like there was people that I would know that I maybe didn't have any beef with but I would I'd see them and I'd put my head down and try and run away because I didn't want to have to converse with them especially if I was sober and Mm. now I can tell you I can look anyone in the eye Like I really appreciate people and I want to hear their story. I want to hear if they have beef, like let's talk about it. And I love kind of creating that connection with people in that safe space where they can be able to do that. And I didn't do that. Recovery gave that to me. Mm. And so there's so much over the years that keeps stocking up more and more and more that you kind of, you start to hold more precious than the the negative habits of addiction. Mm. You know, it's just like, why, why would I trade that for that? Yeah, it's almost like you create this life that you're not willing to lose. Yes, correct. Whereas in the past, it was you know you'd happily throw a oh, day, right. a week, a month away. Yeah, yeah, life becomes really, really precious. It does absolutely. Let's switch gears for a moment. You're a busy woman. <laughs> How do you manage the complexities of life as a busy woman? Um, I always find that I'm. I go from busy to intentional all the time. Mm. Busy to me says that there's chaos and other people's agendas in my schedule. Mm. Intentional means that I'm setting the tone and the pace. And (laughs) I used to think the reason why I started a business and wanted more autonomy is to have harmony and to have like, you know, space and no conflict. And, you know, we, we kind of had this unrealistic expectation that once we sort, you know, X, Y and Z out in our life, we'll have harmony but the absence of conflict isn't harmony, it's apathy. Mm. So when you stop caring about life, mm. it's actually a dangerous position to be in. If you have conflict in your life and you have things that are stretching you and challenging you and making you grow, that means that you're actually pushing for something better in your life. It means that you care about your life. Mm. And so I've realised along the way that I don't want harmony, I want a full complete life Mm. and that comes with regression periods when you've got young children that comes with you know having you know complexities in your marriage that you're working on Mm. you know we we have we just came out of these conference weekends where we do them twice a year and it was full-on like really busy trying to maintain some sort of health and fitness (laughs) in that and I remember I was exhausted coming out of that but I chose that life Mm. and I'm really like it gives me some sort of fulfillment that it was a productive weekend, not a busy weekend. Mm, it's all that, just a shift in mindset, isn't it? Very much so. It's like the, the one millimetre shifts sometimes. Like I don't have to, I get to mm. kind of mindsets. You mm. know, if, if you feel like you, you have to do things, you're putting way too much power in other people's hands. Mm, I love that. It's even the same with going to the gym, mm. getting up early to walk before work. Like I get to do that, not I have to do that. Yeah, you always feel better. Like when you get st- start to nurture some self-care in yourself and some self-respect, um, you realise that the activities that make you feel better after you've done them are self-care. Mm. See, most people think like, I love donuts, I love pizza, I love movies. <laughs> like I feel good thinking about all those things. But I feel horrible after the fact. And that is not self-care, mm. right? But mm. going to the gym, like I usually feel a lot better coming back out after that. Uh, when I go for walks on the beach, when I talk to someone that I care about, like if I have an honest conversation with someone that I, when I've been feeling rough, uh, when I pick up the phone and talk to someone who is feeling rough, I, f- I check my mood after these kind of experiences. And I'm like, oh, that's self-care. Mm. Not what my brain's telling me. Oh, you know, it's, it's almost like this little voice that sits there because you need some time off, like you need to do this. And if you don't check yourself to actually figure out, do I feel better after doing these? then you're not really balancing your life. You're just allowing your energy levels and your emotions to take over. There is so much that's just sinking in right now. 
That's so true, isn't it? Yeah. Because your mind can often, I mean, as a classic perfectionist, I got caught up in the the hard work trap and, you know, I can still do that to this day when people ask me how I am. Like my first response is generally, I try and catch myself now is busy because I do have a little problem with putting a little too much on my plate. But it's this whole idea of your worth being valued by how much you're doing. And I really respect and admire people who carve out time. And I'm, I'm very much working on this myself at the moment of actually carving out the time to slow down. And then when you set that time, actually commit to it. Like mm. Because I can schedule rest in my week <laughs> and then I get there and I'm still on my phone doing social media or I'm, you know, just responding to emails on the couch. Like that is not rest. Like it's that real dedicated time or even like, oh, I'll go to yoga. But that's still, I don't switch off at yoga because I'm a teacher. So I'm in the back of my head, like I'm thinking of the sequencing and like the music and everything, you know, like, so it's like actually setting yourself the challenge to carve that time out. And then, like you said, like being really mindful of how do I feel after that? That's something that I'm going to start to do. Yeah, you definitely should. I did that. I probably implemented that about five years ago Mm. Um, because when you do have a full schedule, you you realise very quickly the things that aren't working in your life anymore, you know, because it's life is a marathon, especially if you've got goals and a vision and you've got uh, a lot of things pulling at you, um, you know, even to be in a 12-step program, like that's still something that you have to prioritise and you just feel like it's never ending sometimes and the more sober you get, the more you feel like people need your help, Mm. (laughs) your assistance Mm. and so you have to get very clever in strategizing your energy outputs Mm. and and where you do them and setting boundaries. Mm. You know, I used to, the first book after my first psychologist appointment when I was newly sober, he goes, have you ever heard of a book called Boundaries? And I was so offended. (laughs) How dare you? (laughs) Because I thought the war was up. To, mm. to everyone but the reason why I was so standoffish is because I had no boundaries yeah so like yes if you start to come within my I will give in and give you whatever you want to appease you but then every other time I'm trying to just keep people away so they don't come into my vortex because you don't know how to, to say ask. yeah I didn't I didn't trust myself mm. and uh and I remember reading it and there was a couple of things that stuck out because it said boundaries boundaries aren't walls they're doors so if people want to have a relationship with you, they know where to walk through. Mm. And But the only people that are, like disagree with the boundaries we set are the ones that abuse them in the first place. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like your world becomes very obvious. And sometimes people don't like the um, – it's very revealing to realise our dynamic, our responsibility and how we've allowed – certain aspects like I I once you know mentored this lady and she's got such a beautiful personality she's so talented she you know she she does a lot of shows and she just said to me she goes I'm really struggling Karina to set time apart to do the things that I know are good for me and we started walking through her day and I, I realized that like she would finish work and then a lot of the people came to her for help in her workplace so last minute be like oh can I just catch you can you have dinner tonight I want to talk to you about something and they would take a hiatus in her day because she had a heart to want to help people, but she had also had no boundaries. And I also shared some of these these things when I was, um, you know, more figuring myself out. And so I had to learn. I'm like, how do I set boundaries without offending people? Mm. And naturally, you offend people along the way, but then eventually you get it right. Mm. <laughs> you know, mm. I was just chatting to my sponsor about this recently when I was in Bali, and we were having a great conversation around boundaries because I think. One of the things that we were we agreed upon as well is that a lot of people set boundaries with the intention of trying to change someone else's behavior. And that is not what a boundary is about. Like a boundary is about protecting yourself. Mm-hmm. You can control your own actions and behavior, but we can't just go around setting boundaries left, right and center. Like I think it's such an overused word these days in a way to try and manipulate or control someone else. Like yep. that's not what this is about. It's mm-hmm. about coming back to yourself managing what's within your own hula hoop Mm -hmm. and feeling really strong within that yeah like this is mine and this is yours like we're not two of the same this is my side this is your side and this is how we meet each other halfway yeah yeah because even like when you think about people um invading your boundaries or vice versa 
Um, it's because they don't know the distance. Like they don't know who you are because you're too busy trying to be something that they want you to be. Mm. So how can they ever know where the boundary is if you're not letting them know I'm okay with this and I'm not okay with this? Mm. And to be to be clear, like you just said, but also consistent. Yes. So consistent's a big one. Yeah, we can't backflip on this stuff. Like, and, and I was just I was talking with a client the other day. It can feel uncomfortable, mm. and if it feels uncomfortable, that's probably a good sign that you're holding the boundary. Mm-hmm. And the more you do it, it's like anything. It gets easier and easier until you get to a point where you don't even realise you're doing it. It's just natural. Mm-hmm. But for anyone listening along that, that wants to start playing around with this kind of stuff, just know that, yeah, it, it doesn't – particularly Awkward. what you said is that, you know, somebody that's abused your boundaries for, for months, years often – They'll test it. They're not going to like it. They will test it. Mm. And they will they will over-emotionalise it at mm. the start until mm. they realise, oh, this is how we continue to have a relationship yeah. So yeah, I've had to set a couple of, especially with you know family members along the way, and at the start they didn't like it, but then like over time they're like, okay, well you know, if if I want access, if I want a relationship, this is now our new relationship. Mm. So when people love you, they respect that. Definitely, and that's a great thing about whether you're in a twelve step program or you're working with a coach or a mentor having that relationship with someone when you're in the early days of learning all of this stuff where you can sense check. Mm. So give give that person a call and say, hey, I've got whoever the person is, The let's just say, I'm just going to say the auntie for some reason so that I can be as vague <laughs> as possible. My auntie keeps <laughs> abusing my boundaries. She's texting again. I said I couldn't come over. Now she's text back and like get a sense check of what do I say here because we're learning all of this stuff, reprogramming all of this language. You're not meant to know how to do this until you're shown how to do it. Mm. Yeah, and even that – remember that awkward activity I was talking about when I first went into um, the the rehab? Like, I feel – like, just owning your side of things. Um, this may be my problem, but I'm not feeling comfortable with this, this dynamic. I, I feel like I need to talk to you about X, Y, and Z, but this is – you know, just own your side. Don't start to blame other people mm. for, you know, saying you're ex- exploiting my boundaries. Like, that's the first way to offend people as soon as you bring <laughs> them into what you're trying to achieve. In the blame game. In yeah. the blame game, yeah. BCD, like no BCD, no blame, complaining, or defending, you know? Ooh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> we actually have that on our wall. I've, I've married a, um, a really annoyingly positive person, and so he's got – and he's got high standards. He's always doing the new, like, you know, um, health kicks and ice challenge and biohacking. And it, it takes me a little while, but I generally kind of, you know, I'm curious enough to figure it out. But you name it. Like, if it's been said in a personal development book, it's on his wall, you know. I love that. <laughs> that's, that. you know what, that's, if we think about spending our lives with people who rub off on us it sounds like a pretty positive person to be around yeah I'd like to say that about him and me sure (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure the feelings mutual both ways (laughs) exactly right exactly right he's wonderful he's been a a big part of I suppose me becoming the woman of confidence that I am so it's never it's never a solo journey this one Mm. absolutely I've had a lot of help along the way to become the person I am, but I just made sure that I was getting the right advice from the right people as well. Yeah, it's so important, isn't it? And just mm. to continue that that self-discovery, that self-inquiry and be open to growth. That's right. Karina, I feel like I could talk to you for hours and we probably will when we stop recording. <laughs> <laughs> but there's one final question that I'd love to finish up on today. Mm-hmm. And that is, what are your three non-negotiables that allow you to live a life today happy, joyous and free? Oh, I should have thought about this one, actually. I think you briefly told me that was coming and I just haven't – we were talking too much, right, to think about it. But non-negotiables, I think um, non-negotiables for me is – well, one would probably be, you know, not accepting the first emotional – reaction in in certain in certain circumstances which has been evident to the the new phase of life that I'm in um you know the I think I've always been someone that enjoyed educational inquiry you know thinking things through because I used to live very impulsively in my active addiction um non-negotiable uh I I don't hang around bullies I don't Mm. hang around people that are uh, mean to people I generally shut that down pretty quickly um, it's really important to me to have safe communities in my my network. I don't 
I don't get bullied by people. Like you can ask, it's hilarious. People in our business team call me queen of boundaries and Tinkerbell with a hammer. You know, it's like this sweetness that. and there's like that. But like as soon as you, there's any kind of negativity, it's like I'm very sharp to kind of shut that down. Mm. Um, I don't entertain that because I know how destructive that can be to the people around us and being bullied as a kid as well. I know how hurtful it is. Um, but also making sure that I live through my values is also a non, like another non-negotiable we, um, we believe in spirituality, family, health, wealth creation and personal growth. And every time I have a, a hard life experience or season come my way, I always filter my decisions through those values because it's like, is this going to get me closer to the life I want to live or further away? Mm. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's been a huge non-negotiable in helping me navigate a lot of tough situations. Mm. I love how you were just able to list your values off the top of your head like that, like that's somebody who embodies their values in a day-to-day basis. That's beautiful. I've had to remind myself on a daily basis what they are. <laughs> They're quick forgetters. <laughs> I said, I'm no stranger to like the, the the twinkle of the world and like even though I've been married for 10 years, you know, there's still a, a, like we're still humans. Mm. You know, people think when you're married you're safeguarded from all of life's problems but it's like I'm still human. Like, you know, I, I still go against attacks sometimes. And so I have to filter my decisions rather than take action on them. And mm. like the old me would have taken action on them, but I've, I've had to really kind of create that boundary in myself. Otherwise, like I just repeat the life that was probably imp- like, in, in, you know, in, in kind of impended, I want to say that's not the right word, but it was kind of like, like my, my mum's, um, you know, mental health early on, I feel like that was very emotional for her. Mm. And so it's almost like I've done the exact opposite now. It's like, okay, there's emotion, but like, like how do we logically figure ourselves out from this as well? Yeah, rather than letting it sweep you Take up, over. you can be more of an observer, more of a witness. That's right. Have yeah. that practice, that non-attachment. Karina, if people want to go out and stalk you, <laughs> people want to find out more about you, uh, check out your business, where can they go? Oh, I mostly just do everything through my Instagram. Like we have, you know, LinkedIn, Karina McKenna, Instagram, K-J-A-Y-M-C-K. Um, you know, like we're, we're very much just showcase our life through, you know, our individuality. Um, and so, yeah, if anyone wanted to connect, I'd be more than happy for you to connect with me on there. Beautiful. I'll make sure I pop that information in the episode show notes. We say here on Behind the Smile that when we recover loudly, no one needs suffer in silence. So thank you for coming here today and sharing your time so generously and for your open and honest conversation. Oh, thank you, Ash. It's been a pleasure. Thank Thanks, Karina. A big thank you for tuning in today. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so by hitting the follow button and leaving a rating and review. Each rating and review helps this podcast become more discoverable so more people can hear these stories of strength and hope. Together, we will continue to remove the stigma around mental health, trauma and addiction. Remember to reach out to those you care about and I'll be back next week. Until then.